You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Okay, would you please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is found in your New Testament. So kind of near the, it's one of the bigger books in your New Testament. So go to the New Testament and uh, go past the Gospels, past Romans. Then you got uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and we'll begin by reading our text, which is the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning verse 1. I must go on boasting, though here is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up to paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness." Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we study it, as we consider it, as we make application for our lives, Lord, would you enlighten our eyes, uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might see and understand and apply these things from your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak into areas of our lives, help us to make application from these things to what's going on with us. And Lord, help us that we might be changed and transformed by the power of your word as we study it this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So our current series is called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And uh, what we're doing in this series is we're taking nine weeks. It was originally seven, but we've extended it because we got a lot of feedback that uh, this series has been very helpful for people. And so we had a few more topics that we wanted to discuss. So uh, originally seven weeks, now nine weeks. And what we're doing is we're looking at some of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity and the Bible. And we're taking an honest look at them and really dealing with them head on. A few months ago, we posted a poll online in which we asked the question, how would you complete this sentence? I could never believe in a God who, and we got a lot of response to that poll, and uh, people, some of you filled it out. We had people who listened to the radio who filled it out, and people online. And what we did is we took all the responses as people finished that sentence, I could never believe in a God who, um, and we took that and we identified some of the topics which people say make it hard for them to really embrace fully the gospel and to really put their trust in the Bible and in Jesus Christ. 
And our goal with this series is that we want to hopefully remove some of these barriers because as we look at them, we believe that, hey, you know what? There's some really good answers to these questions that maybe if we could present these, it would actually remove some of those barriers and some of those hurdles which people say are keeping them from either, you know, really fully stepping over that line and putting their faith in Jesus or maybe it's causing a hindrance in their relationship with God. It's just a hang up that they have. They say, this is the thing I can't get over. So we want to help people move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. But the other thing we want to do is We want to help equip you so that when you're uh, out and about throughout the week talking to people, you'll have some answers and some tools to be able to speak to people who are asking these very questions that you encounter throughout the week. Now, so when when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the biggest struggles that people have is that they say this. They say, I could never believe in a God who does not answer my prayers. I could never believe in a God who does not answer my prayers. A lady called into a radio talk show recently and she said that she had given up believing in God because her husband had gotten sick and she had prayed and prayed that he would get better, but in the end he died. And she said that part of the reason why she had given up on God and Christianity and this Bible stuff was because when her husband was sick, she had gone to her church and she had talked to her pastor And he had pointed her to a few verses in the Bible in which Jesus spoke about the power of prayer. Let me read those verses to you and we'll talk about them. Here's Matthew 21. Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We have John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then what, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So these verses seem very encouraging, don't they? Like they would encourage you to pray and ask with confidence. Whatever you ask for in faith and in the name of Jesus, you will receive. And so this woman heard these verses as their pastor pointed them out to her and she prayed. She did and she tried to pray in faith and she prayed in Jesus' name. And her husband did not get better. He died. And she went back and asked her pastor, she said, why didn't God answer her prayers? And his response was essentially, she hadn't prayed hard enough, or perhaps she hadn't prayed with enough faith, or maybe there was something in her life that wasn't right with God. In fact, he went even further and said, well, maybe there was something wrong with your husband, and that's why God didn't heal him. Maybe he he wasn't really a Christian or, or something along those lines. And her response was, She was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with Christianity altogether because in her opinion, it just didn't work. Now, maybe some of you can relate to that woman's experience. Maybe you've prayed for something and you didn't get the results that you hoped for. And then you read verses in the Bible that say, hey, pray and have faith and and you'll get what you ask for. And if you pray in Jesus' name and you've prayed, you've tried, and you've experienced this, and your experiences with not getting the results you hoped you would get in prayer perhaps have caused you to doubt God's goodness or even God's existence. Now, let me tell you this. This isn't something that is only something that Christians struggle with and grapple with. What's interesting about statistics about prayer is that if you look at the statistics, almost everyone prays. 
there's a very small majority of people who do not believe in God and don't pray. What's interesting is among people who are what we call agnostic, which means they don't necessarily affiliate with any religious belief. They just believe that maybe there's a God, but they don't know who he is. Agnostic people tend to pray. And so what you have is that, check these numbers out, about 30%, 30 to 39% of the U.S. population attends religious services of any kind. So 30 to 30%. And yet 80 to 90% of people say, who were polled, said that they prayed at least once within the last three months. Now that prayer might be as simple as just calling out to God or, or their perception of God. But the point is that even people who aren't even sure if they believe in God, people who are unaffiliated religiously, people pray. Karl Barth, who's a Swiss theologian, he famously said this, there seems to be an innate human instinct for prayer. It's an instinct that we have. It comes so incredibly naturally to us to pray. And it's something that happens across the board. But here's the thing. So everybody's praying, even people who don't even know if they believe in God. People pray, but when they pray uh, and their prayers go unanswered, it causes people to ask a lot of questions. Like, look, if God can help, then why doesn't he? Right? I'm not asking for bad things. I'm not asking for silly things. I'm asking for, you know, someone I love who is sick. I'm asking for a child who's suffering. How can these be things that, that God would say no to? And why does God answer some prayers and not other prayers? Is God somehow like passive aggressive and he won't answer my prayers because there's something he doesn't like about how I'm living and yet he won't tell me what that thing is? So unanswered prayer for a lot of people can be a barrier to faith and a barrier to relationship with God. In the poll that we took, this was one of the responses we got. So people said, I really struggle to believe in a God who does not answer my prayers. And when you read that, you cannot help but realize that there is a story behind every one of those people who wrote that response. There's a story. There's something that happened. There's something perhaps going on right now. And you can't help but look at it, and you can almost feel in their response the pain and the disappointment and the frustration that they're dealing with. And into this discussion, the Bible gives us a story. And that's what we're going to look at today. Into this discussion, the Bible gives us a story. It's the story of one of the heroes of the Christian faith, a man named Paul. We call him Paul the Apostle. And there was a time in his life when he prayed for something and God did not give him what he asked for. He didn't get the results that he desired. And so we're going to look at this. And as we do, there are three things in this section that I really want to point out to you that take special note of. The first is this, and we're going to walk through this section. In the first seven verses, what we see is that Paul got an unwanted gift. First, we see an unwanted gift. So when Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, just to give you some context and some background so that we understand what he's talking about here, he was facing a lot of criticism from some people in the Corinthian church, a lot of criticism. See, Paul had started this church in Corinth himself. He was their very first pastor. He had moved to the city with a group of people and together they had preached the gospel and they had gathered the believers together and they began teaching them the Bible. And after some time, Paul left and, and he appointed another pastor over their church. But after Paul left, people in the church began criticizing him. And we know this from, from reading uh, these letters. They started turning people against Paul as well and telling people not to listen to what Paul had to say. And what they said was that Paul 
wasn't spiritual, that he wasn't spiritual enough. And to prove that fact, they pointed to the fact that Paul had experienced and did experience a lot of hardship in his life. Paul was constantly and often sick. One time, for example, he was on a ship and the ship crashed. You know, he was beaten up several times. He was arrested several times. And it seemed like if something bad could possibly happen, then it would absolutely happen to Paul. It seemed like just calamity seemed to follow him everywhere he went. And these people looked at that and they said, look, surely this is not a man of God. Surely a man of God wouldn't have a life that's such a mess like this guy's life. Surely a man of God would be much more victorious and wouldn't have all the problems that Paul has. They accused Paul of being a weak person spiritually and they said, why would you follow somebody like that? His life is a mess. Why would you follow somebody like that? Instead, they said, you ought to follow us. Look at our lives. We've got it all together. Everything in our lives is going great. And that's the sign that God is with us and he's not with Paul. And one of the things uh, these people would often boast about was that they had a lot of spiritual visions and revelations from God. And they said, well, you know, Paul doesn't have spiritual visions and revelations from God. He's not spiritual like we are. And so what happened, it seems, is that the, some people from Corinth wrote Paul a letter and they asked Paul to respond to these accusations that people were bringing against him and making about him. And so here in 2 Corinthians, that's what Paul does. He responds and refutes these accusations and these things that people were saying against him, albeit he does it a bit reluctantly. He seems to be kind of acquiescing to their request that, they, that he respond to these issues and refute them, but he does so seemingly kind of reluctantly. He doesn't, you see that throughout the letter, he's kind of hesitant in saying, look, I don't like talking about myself, but, but let me just respond to what these people are saying. That's why he says here in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, in the first verse of this chapter, he says this, I must go on boasting. There is nothing to be gained for it, but I have to. So I will go on to talk about visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul's saying, look, you want to know if I've ever had any visions? Well, actually, I have. Let me, let me tell you about a vision I had just to, to answer your question. Verse two, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, Paul is speaking here in the third person. He's actually talking about himself. He says, look, I know a guy. He's the guy he's talking about is himself. It's like when you tell somebody, hey, I need some advice for a friend, but you're really asking for yourself. Why is Paul speaking in the third person? Well, um, it's because he really wants to take attention away from himself. He's a little bit embarrassed to even be speaking about these things that he's experienced and kind of trying to prove himself to these people. Now we know that Paul's talking about himself and not somebody else because in verse seven, Paul switches and begins talking about how this vision that he's talking about was actually a vision that he had. So it's very clear, especially later on in the chapter, Paul's talking about himself, but he starts out by talking in the third person. He says this, uh, look, 14 years ago, I had this experience. I was caught up to the third heaven. Now, what is the 
third heaven. The third heaven was a common way of speaking and thinking in the ancient world. Basically, here's what they said. The blue sky, like what we would call our atmosphere, is what they called the first heaven. Beyond that outer space, or what they would call the starry sky, is what they called the second heaven. And then the third heaven wasn't necessarily a physical realm, but it was the spiritual realm in which God dwelt. And so we've got, you know, atmosphere, uh, outer space, and then the third heaven is that place where God dwells. And so what Paul is saying here is that he was caught up into the presence of God into the place where God dwells. And we know that because in verse three, Paul identifies this third heaven as paradise. So that's where he went, to the dwelling place, the immediate presence of God. So you wonder, what did he see there? What was this vision that Paul got of heaven? Well, well, first of all, he says this. Look, did Paul go there physically? Like, did he actually get transported in his spirit or physically to heaven? Or was this just like a vision that he had, kind of like the vision that Isaiah had of heaven and the throne room of God in the book of Isaiah chapter six? Well, Paul says he doesn't know. He's not sure. He says, look, I'll just tell you what I saw, what I experienced. I don't know if it was just a vision I had or if I was actually there. I'm not sure. But here's what happened. Now, now, let me just stop here and say this. The timing of this is interesting because he says specifically it happened 14 years prior to him writing this letter. Now, if you, you kind of do a little math and you look at the book of Acts and what would happen at about 14 years ago, well, 14 years seems to line up with his first missionary journey. Now, there's something really interesting that happened on his first missionary journey, which this may be alluding to or maybe not. I think it is, and I'll just let you decide for yourself. But here's the thing. We can't be sure, but a lot of people think and wonder if this vision took place during Paul's first missionary journey when he was in a city called Lystra. Lystra, you can read about this in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And there in Lystra, Paul was attacked by a group of people who didn't like the fact that he was preaching about Jesus. And they, they did what was customary in their culture when you considered somebody to have committed blasphemy or any other crime worthy of death. And that is that they would take big rocks. I mean, not, not like, you know, river rocks. We're talking big rocks. And you would stone a person to death. I mean, think about that blunt force trauma, right, to the head and to the internal organs. It was an awful, terrible, but also effective way of killing somebody. And so they would throw rocks at this person until they died. And that's what they did to Paul. They stoned him to death, or at least until they were convinced that he was dead. Then they dragged him out of the city and left him in what was like the trash heap of the city right outside the, the city limits. So you can imagine, right, Paul getting hit with all these rocks in the head. And, and some people speculate maybe he even did die, or maybe he had what we might call a near-death experience. And many people believe that maybe this vision, or even going to heaven, whether whatever it was, that this happened at that time when Paul was stoned to death or nearly to death, and he had maybe what was like a, a near-death experience in which maybe he did go to heaven and experience these things. We don't know. That's, that's a matter of speculation. But either way, um, what's more significant, I think, is this. Paul had this incredible vision of heaven. Paul maybe has this incredible spiritual experience, and he didn't talk about it for 14 years, Right? Like nowadays, what happens, right? Everybody's like, hey, I went to heaven for two minutes and now I'm gonna write a book about it and I'm gonna sell the movie rights and I'm gonna go on tour and I want you to buy the book so I can make a lot of money off of my heaven tourism, right? And Paul wasn't like that. He kept this to himself. 
literally didn't even talk about it for 14 years. And now the only reason he's talking about it to the Corinthians is doing it reluctantly, almost out of necessity, because they need to know. Now, this really shows, again, Paul's humility, and and I also think his sense of reverence for the things of God. He's not trying to cheapen them or make them some kind of uh, item that he can make money off of or, or use to promote himself. No, there's a sense of reverence about the holiness of God and the holiness of what he experienced, and he's kept it to himself all these years, and he finally tells them kind of out of necessity. Now, maybe you wonder, right, the big question, okay, Paul, you went to heaven. Tell us what it was like. What did you see? What did you hear? Tell us everything, right? Write a book. We want to read it. He says in verse 4, I heard things that cannot be told and which man may not utter. Well, thanks a lot, Paul, right? Like, big help there. I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. But you might wonder... Why would God give Paul this vision or this experience? I mean, if the things that Paul saw were things that he couldn't speak about and he kept silent about this experience for 14 years, then what was the point of this whole thing anyway? Like, why did God bother to give him this vision or this experience? Well, if the things, right, that he saw, then what was the point? I believe the purpose was this. I believe it was to give Paul a glimpse of what awaited him in order to keep him motivated, to keep him going, to keep him focused. See, this vision for the rest of Paul's life would be something that would sustain him through the most difficult moments of his life. This is something that would keep him motivated, something that would keep him focused when things got hard, when things got difficult, when he faced opposition and trials, when he faced imprisonment and even death. This vision of heaven is what would have sustained him and kept him going because Paul knew what awaited him. He had caught a glimpse of it, even if just for a short time, and he would live the rest of his life differently as a result. You know, that's what happens when you really understand heaven, isn't it? You live the rest of your life differently as a result. You can't live the same way. See, Paul knew what awaited him, and it caused him to live differently as a result. The goal of his life was no longer to try to have his best life now. No, he knew that his best life is not here. His best life was to come. He had seen a glimpse of it and he knew what awaited him. The purpose of this life, Paul decided, was to be used by God to carry out God's mission in the world of bringing life and joy and love and hope to all people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse five, I will not boast about this vision I had. I'm not going to use it to make you think more of me. The only thing I will boast about is this. I will boast about my weakness. Now that's interesting, right? Because the people who are criticizing him were criticizing him because of his weakness. They're calling him weak. And Paul is saying, you know what? I am weak. I am weak. And you know what? My weakness is not something I'm ashamed of. You know, it's like people who say Christianity, believing in God, it's just a crutch. We say, yes, it's a crutch, but it's more than a crutch. It's a hospital bed. It's the whole hospital, right? And I am weak and I boast in that weakness. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of my weakness. He says, look, you want to, you want to, you know, have a, this, some kind of strange competition, He says, fine, I've had greater visions and more profound spiritual experiences than any of you guys have ever had. But you know what? I don't talk about those things. I don't boast about those things. You know what I want to talk about and boast about? I'll boast about my weakness. And he's going to tell us why in a moment as we go on. But he says this in verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see, there would be a temptation for anybody who had an experience like what Paul had to become conceited, right? To become condescending towards others, to, to think that they're better than other people. And Paul was not immune to that temptation. And so in order to keep him humble, God gave Paul what he calls a thorn in the flesh. In other words, the only reason Paul tells us about this heavenly vision at all is to explain why God gave him the thorn in the flesh. In other words, Paul's like, look, we, we want all the juicy details. Paul, tell us about your vision. Tell us how it happened. Tell us what you saw. And Paul's like, you know what? The vision, I don't want to talk about the vision. The only reason I bring up the vision is to explain to you the reason why I have this thorn in the flesh. Apparently, the thorn in the flesh was some kind of affliction or some kind of ailment that, that Paul knew about and other people could know about it, right? It was something that other, it was obvious to other people. They could see it or they could see what it was. And clearly some people thought less of Paul because of this thorn that he had in his flesh. And yet they didn't understand the profound spiritual experience which lay behind his thorn in the flesh, Again, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. And people have speculated about for a long time what it was. But I'll just suffice to say this. The overwhelming majority of scholars on this topic believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical ailment that he suffered from. And most scholars believe it was something to do with his eyes. And that would make a lot of sense because there, there are about three passages in the New Testament which allude to the fact that Paul had a serious problem with his eyes. One of them is found in his letter to the Galatians, which is interesting because he went to Galatia right after he went to Lystra, which is when we would say, you know, timeline lines up, that first missionary journey. He says in his letter to the Galatians, when I came to you, you showed me so much love, so much hospitality and kindness. He says, you would have been willing to gouge out your own eyes and give them to me. Well, why would, I mean, I don't come to your house and ask you to gouge out your eyes for me, right? Why? Because I don't have a problem with my eyes. But right, Paul clearly had some kind of issue with his eyes. At the end of Galatians, uh, he's been writing through a scribe. He's been dictating to a scribe. And at the end of Galatians, he takes the pen in his own hands. And he says, see what large letters I write to you with my own hand. Why would he write with large letters? Well, maybe because he had a problem with his eyes. Another reason is in the book of Acts, Paul is, is on trial and someone speaks to him and Paul speaks back and then he gets slapped in the face and they say, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul was like, I didn't, I didn't notice, that, I didn't see that that was the high priest. Well, a high priest wore special clothes. You couldn't not know that that was the high priest unless you had something wrong with your eyes. So it's very possible that Paul had uh, something very wrong with his eyes. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it wasn't fun. Let's put it that way. Now, when we tend to think of thorns, right, we tend to think of like, a minor irritation, maybe like the thorns that you experience on like a rose bush, like every rose has its thorn, right? But the words that Paul, the word that Paul uses for thorn here in this passage doesn't describe a little irritation, like a little prickle, right? No, it describes a tent stake. That's what the word uh, can be translated as, a tent stake, not a thumbtack. And so the thorn in the flesh, think about this, he says this thorn in the flesh, it's like having a tent stake 
pounded into your body. That's what it feels like. He describes this thorn as a messenger from Satan to harass him. Now that word harass, it literally means to punch with fists. Paul's saying this thing, it just, it's beating me up, man. It's just beating me up. And here's the thing I want you to notice. He says in verse seven, he says this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan that just beat him up. He says it was given to me. Now think about that because it's very profound what Paul's saying here. Think about this. Paul considered this great trial, this thorn in the flesh to be a gift. Now, I really wanna stop there and talk about this. I wanna say this again. Paul considered this thorn in the flesh, this messenger from Satan to, to buffet him. He considered it a gift. He doesn't say, uh, this thorn in the flesh was inflicted upon me. No, he says it was given to me. And, and who is it given to him by? By God. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Let me ask you this. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't really want? that maybe you didn't enjoy, right? Something ugly, but you can't get rid of it because every time that person comes over, they're gonna be looking for it to make sure you still have it. Or maybe it's something that, hey, somebody gives you something and now it costs you a ton of money to maintain that thing. And you're like, well, thanks, I was fine without it and I didn't really want it, but now you've given it to me and I can't get rid of it. Well, that's how Paul felt about this thorn in the flesh when he first received it at least. He understood that God allowed it and maybe it was useful, but he didn't really like it. He didn't enjoy it. It was painful. It was like having a tent stake pounded into his body. It was visible. And on top of everything, other people judged him for it. And more than anything, it hurt. It was beating him up. And yet, Paul has come to this point in his life by the time he writes this letter where he's able to look at that thorn in his flesh and say, this affliction was God's gift to me because of what it accomplished in my life. Now, I just want to stop right there, and I want to ask you to think about that. I wonder if there's some area in your life where you feel attacked, where you feel beat up. Maybe it's something that just really hurts, whether it's physically or even emotionally. And I just want to ask you this question. Is it possible, is it possible that that thorn has been allowed in your life by God as a gift because of what he will use it for and what he will accomplish through it? I want you to ask yourself that question. Two weeks ago, I gave you a list of six ways that we can see in the Bible that God uses suffering for good. And at that time, two weeks ago, we kind of had to speed through the list. So I thought, you know what? We need to revisit this because this is important. So this week, that's what we're gonna do just for the next minute or so. We're gonna look through these six points and, and spend just a second talking about each of them. Six ways that God uses suffering in our lives as a gift. Number one, God uses suffering to produce humility in us. That's what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. That as Paul looks at this thing, he says, this thorn in my flesh, it's a gift. Here's why. Because it keeps me humble. You guys know this. It's a good thing to be humble. You should never be afraid of God working in your life to make you humble. You know why? Because throughout the Bible, we're told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The last thing we should ever want to be is proud. Being proud, that is maybe the most dangerous thing that can ever happen to you. 
Because at the end of the day, pride is the reason why people perish, even eternally. Pride is what it's all about because you're unwilling to humble yourself before God and pursue his mercy and seek his mercy and receive his grace. Pride is the reason why Lucifer was cast down from heaven. Pride is, the root of, is at the root of all sins. It destroys relationships. Have you ever experienced that? Relationships destroyed by pride? It creates a barrier, not just between you and other people, it creates a barrier between you and God. Is that what you want? Do you want that? I don't think you do. I know I don't. Well, then in that case, anything that God uses to root out pride in my life and produce humility in me is a gift. And one of the ways he does that is sometimes through suffering. Another way God uses suffering is that he uses suffering to draw people to himself. An example of this is seen in the prodigal son, right? In Luke chapter uh, 15, right? The prodigal son, or he turns his back on his father and he leaves home. And that story, it's a picture of who we are and, and what we do to God. We say, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. I want to do my own thing. And I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to stop me from doing what I want to do. I'm just going to go do it. And so the prodigal son goes off and he does his own thing until at one point he runs out of money, he finds himself hungry and dirty and poor. And it's at that point that he remembers his father's house and he says, you know what, even the servants in my father's house have it better off than I do. You know what, maybe if I swallow my pride and I go back home, my dad will be willing to receive me as a slave. I'm sure he won't take me back as a son after all that I've done, after the ways that I've insulted him, after the ways that I've sinned. Surely he won't take me back as a son, but maybe he'll receive me back as a slave. That would still be better for me than where I'm at right now. And again, if you know the story, the prodigal son goes back and his father is so happy to see him. He runs to meet him as he comes down the road. He embraces him, puts his ring on him, kills the fattened calf, throws a party for him. And he says, my son who was dead is now alive. Come and rejoice with me. And the point is, this is the story of us. This is the story of God. This is an allegory of who God is and who we are. And it's important for us to note this thing, that when the prodigal son was suffering, that was when he started thinking about coming home. It was when he suffered. And sometimes God uses suffering in our lives to draw us to himself. There are plenty of people, and sometimes us, right, that the only time we think about God is when we've got a problem. And so God says, you know, if that's what it takes, then so be it. Another, another passage in this light is this. In Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, the, the psalmist says this, before I was afflicted, I used to go astray, but now I keep your word. And he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I would learn your statutes. And he says, in your faithfulness, God, you afflicted me. See, the psalmist apparently uh, experienced some kind of affliction, and yet he's glad that it happened because God used it in his life to Stop him from wandering away all the time and to bring him back to God, bring him to his knees through this thing to get his attention again. And I wonder if there are some of you, you say, you know what? There was a time in my life where I went through something that I hope I never go through ever again, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because God used it to bring me to my knees and bring me back to him and, and help me to receive grace and mercy and bring me to trust Jesus. Number three, God allows suffering to build perseverance, character, and hope. In Romans 8, verse 29, we're told that God's purpose in your life is to shape you into the image of Jesus. 
In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, we're told that one of the ways that God shapes us most significantly is through trials and struggles and difficulties and hardships. Number four, God allows suffering to help you develop compassion, kindness, and empathy for others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how when we go through hardship and difficulty, God will use that to create empathy in us, to make us empathetic and compassionate people whom he can use then in the future to minister to other people who go through similar things as we go through. Number five, God uses suffering to advance the gospel. In Philippians chapter one, Paul has gone through some awful, terrible, you know, unjust things. He's been the victim of corruption. His friends have stabbed him in the back. He's been accused of crimes he didn't commit. And Paul says there in Philippians one, he says, you know what? All of the things that have happened to me have been used by God for the furtherance of the gospel. And in that I rejoice. And number six, suffering can be used to bring glory to God. In John chapter 9, the gospel of John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking next to the pool of Bethesda and they see a man who was born blind, or sorry, the pool of Siloam, and they see this man who was born blind and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they're assuming that this man's affliction was some kind of punishment from God, some kind of retribution for something that somebody did wrong. That's how many people think about hardship, isn't it? That's how many people think today. It's reflected when we say this sentence, God, what have I done to deserve this? But Jesus told his disciples there, he said, look, nobody did anything to deserve this. It wasn't that this man sinned or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, sometimes suffering is used to bring glory to God. Paul received a gift, but it was an unwanted gift and we know that it was unwanted because of how he responded. That's the second point we have here, which is this. An unanswered prayer. In verse 8, Paul says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul prayed about this issue multiple times. And he prayed passionately. He pleaded. He begged God to take this away from him. And yet, Paul's prayer was not answered. So Paul prayed again, right? Why? Was Paul praying wrong? Did he not have enough faith? No, what we see as we go on is that there was something bigger that God was doing. That's our third point. An unexpected strength in verses nine and 10. Paul says this in verse nine. But he said to me, that's God. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The reason Paul's prayer wasn't answered wasn't because Paul prayed wrong. It wasn't because Paul didn't have enough faith. The reason Paul's prayer wasn't answered was because God said no. That's why God said no to his request. Now, wait a second. Let me bring you back to those verses we talked about at the beginning. Didn't Jesus say that if a person has faith and prays in his name, then God will give them whatever they ask? Yes, that's what it says. But apparently, God reserves the right to say no. See, the idea of praying in Jesus' name, this means praying according to his will. It means praying according to his authority and his purposes. Kind of like if I were to send you to the post office to pick something up in my name. I'm sending you to do it according to my desire and according to my authority. So God reserves the right to say no to any of our requests. That's what it means that he's God. See, it isn't that God doesn't hear our prayers. It's not even that God doesn't answer our prayers. It's that sometimes he answers them with a no 
That's a legitimate answer to say no or to say not right now. See, here's what God's promise means when he says that he will give us whatever we ask in Jesus' name. It means this. God will either give you what you ask or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Think about that. God will either give you what you ask or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. See, look at how Paul responds to God's answer to his request. Verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's detractors had accused him of being weak. They looked down on him for his infirmities. But Paul says, I'm not embarrassed about my weakness. Rather, I glory in my weakness because see, look, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong because it's not my strength. It's God's strength that work in me. And God can do more through my weakness than I could ever do in my own strength. And maybe you say, well, hey, look, Easy for Paul, right? You know why? Because at least Paul got an answer from God as to why this was happening to him, as to what God's purpose was with this affliction was that he was, he was suffering. I don't even know what God's purpose is with what's happening to me. I don't know why God's not giving me what I'm asking for. What if, now, now hear me out, okay? What if prayer is not so much about getting what we want and is more about achieving what God wants? What if prayer is not so much about getting what we want as it is about getting what God wants and achieving what God wants? Maybe uh, you should say, now maybe you would say, well, wait a second. You say prayer is about getting, accomplishing what God wants. Well, can't God just accomplish what he wants without my involvement anyway? Of course he can, yeah. But what if through prayer, God is not just accomplishing his work in the world, he's also accomplishing his work in the world while at the same time accomplishing his work in you. See, we often think about prayer kind of like uh, we think about vending machines. By the way, if you ever want to see the worst of humanity on display, go to YouTube and watch videos of people angry at vending machines. You're going to be like, what? You know, just so many videos of people uh, fighting vending machines. Sometimes I even saw one where the vending machine fought back and landed on somebody who was hitting it, which was, you know, some poetic justice there. So and we think about God in prayer like a vending machine, right? Like prayer is the currency. If you put it in and it's not wrinkled, then you'll get the thing that you want, right? You push the right button, put in the right amount of money, then you get the, the desired outcome. You get the product that you want. And if it doesn't work, then you get angry because it means the machine is broken. So you kick the machine and you hit the machine. See, what we've learned from looking at Paul here in 2 Corinthians is that sometimes God's purpose in prayer isn't just to give you what you want, but to accomplish something inside of you, something beyond you, something even outside of you. See, you got to come to this place of submitting your life and your will to his purpose, which is bigger than yours. Now, don't take me wrong. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask. Actually, I think that we should come to God with everything. We should ask all the more knowing this. We should come to God with every desire, every request, every wish. Look at what Timothy Keller has to say about prayer. He says this, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. To fail to pray is not merely to break some religious rule. It is failure to treat God as God. See, when we pray, 
We should pray with hearts that are fully, truly trusting in God and in his absolute goodness, in his perfect wisdom, in his knowledge of what is right and what is needed. And I'll just conclude by saying this. You know, Paul isn't the only person in the Bible to have one of his prayers go unanswered or to be answered with a no. There was another whose request was denied and his faith was perfect. He had done nothing wrong to merit God punishing him by not granting his request. And yet he asked God for something and the response God gave was no. Now, of course, you might've picked up on what I was putting down. I'm talking about Jesus who on the night before he was crucified, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed because he knew what awaited him. He knew that he was going to be crucified and on that cross, he would bear our sins and he would receive the judgment that we deserved. And in that moment, he was so gripped with fear and anxiety that he prayed and he begged the Father saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, it tells us that he prayed this prayer multiple times that night. And the answer that came back each time was no. There was no other way to accomplish the mission which Jesus had come to accomplish, to provide salvation and a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God and saved for eternity. See, in Jesus, we see the perfect posture of prayer. He makes his request known to God, and and yet he's completely submitted to the will of the Father for the response. That phrase, not my will, but your will be done, it expresses complete trust in God's wisdom, God's goodness, and God's love. And ultimately, aren't we so thankful that God told him no? Aren't we so thankful that in the garden, Jesus accepted that no and submitted to the will of the Father? The result of that unanswered prayer is our salvation. But I will tell you this, until you can say, your will be done to God from the bottom of your heart, you will never know peace. Until you can say from the bottom of your heart to God, your will be done, you will never know peace. And it's by looking to the cross that we see who God truly is, what his character is truly like, that he loves us so much that he would come to us and give his life to save us. If he loves you that much, then you can trust in him, even when he says no, even when he says not right now. So may we be those who look to the cross and embrace what Jesus did. And as we fix our eyes on the cross, may, we, may that become the lens through which we view our entire lives understanding that the God who loves you that much is the one who is working in your life, even in the hard things, to bring about something beautiful. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have this kind of trust in you. Lord, that you are a God who works even through the difficult things, even through the hard things, even through the uncomfortable things, Lord, to bring about good because that is how much you love us. Lord, may we be those who trust in you. May we be those who view all of our lives and all of our circumstances through the lens of the cross, understanding that you are a good and wise God who loves us. Lord, your love on display on the cross. Lord, help us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. And Lord, help us to really filter everything that we experience, everything that we think through that lens, understanding that you are the God who loves us. Therefore, anything you bring into our lives, even the difficult things, is something you wanna use in order to accomplish your work in us and through us. So Lord, may we submit ourselves to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 